0: Toward the close of Colossians chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul brings forth teaching concerning the relative responsibilities and duties of servants and masters. Now when people see that kind of terminology, it sometimes would cause a sharp intake of breath because automatically we associate that sort of talk with Slavery, And of course, in the day in which Paul was writing this, slavery was common. In the Roman Empire, it was reckoned uh, that perhaps as many as 50% of the population were slaves. One writer said, in the Roman Empire, there were perhaps over 60 million slaves. That was over one half of the population. Slaves in those days were considered subhuman. A slave was a tool. A slave was a commodity, not a person. And the master-slave relationship was normally not a happy one. And so there was a lot of friction and a lot of cause for grievance. Now in that cultural setting a church was established. And as I pointed out last time, it was not the purpose of the Apostle Paul in writing to the church at Colossae to condemn slavery. Nor was it his purpose to speak highly or in favour of slavery. But rather what he did was to speak with great wisdom to the situation as he found it. And the situation in which he found himself as a preacher was writing to a church in which there were people who were servants. And the Greek word that underlies the word in Colossians 3 verse 22 and other places here is the word for bond slave. The Greek word for slave is doulos. The plural is douloi. Servants. Bond slaves. And the word for masters, chapter 4 verse 1, is in fact the word for those who owned slaves there were such in the church in that cultural setting both slaves servants and masters were converted the Lord saved people like Philemon if you take the little epistle to Philemon Paul wrote that one chapter to a man who was a slave owner we know that Because in the course of that epistle, he mentions the runaway servant or slave, Onesimus. And Onesimus, according to what we read here in Philemon, was a man who ran away from his master. But while he was in the city of Rome, he encountered the Apostle Paul. And through Paul's ministry, he was converted. And so Paul sought to reconcile this runaway slave with his master Philemon and you will notice that when he wrote to Philemon he was very careful to tell him that now Onesimus who had been unprofitable was profitable profitable both to him and to Paul and he said I want you to treat him as a brother not as a slave but as a brother So there was every likelihood that Onesimus was going to return to that home. But it wasn't a brand new relationship to Philemon, because now he was a converted man. He was a believer. He was one who was a servant of Christ, not just a servant of Philemon. Because there were slaves and masters converted in this particular day, the potential for tremendous friction in the church existed it was thus a sensitive problem for paul to deal with because paul frankly was bringing revolutionary teaching into that situation no one was teaching in that day what paul was teaching what was paul teaching that in christ there's neither bond nor free there's neither male nor female there's not jew nor greek but ye are all one in christ jesus That was revolutionary teaching. Now, as I say, Paul didn't set out to fight slavery per se, but neither did he sanction it. He wasn't part of the social reform movement, but he did set out to change lives and attitudes through the gospel. And it is a fact of history that such gospel preaching resulted in the overthrow of the Roman Empire and the slavery that it operated. Just as we could say, I pointed this out last time, about gospel preaching of revival preachers. In later centuries, it resulted in the abolition of slavery and child labor in places like Great Britain and America. The gospel did that. So Paul dealt with the situation as he found it. And his teaching was definitely novel and new to the people of the Roman Empire. Now, while the teaching was given against the background of ancient world culture, its message is still relevant for our situation. We don't have bond slaves today. We don't have masters today. We don't have people who own other people as a commodity. But what we do have is a situation where you have employers and employees And if we were to replace the word servants with employees and the word masters with employers, we have what one preacher called a recipe for good relations in the workplace. If you apply this teaching to everyday life in the work-a-day world, in the world of business, in the world of finance, how different things would be. You see, a place of work ought to be a place of harmony between Christians, Christian employers and Christian employees. Now you might say, well, Christian employers, employers are quite rare. Perhaps. But there are some. It's getting to be the case where Christian employees are a rarity as well. But there are some. We have some in the church tonight, no doubt. You're Christian employees... And the Lord has something to say to you and to me about these matters. Now last time we dealt with the dedication of the Christian employee. I don't want to go back over that ground again. But simply to remind you that the Christian who works should have a testimony that is good. That he will be looked upon as those who employ him as an honest and hard working employee. I gave the illustration of Gerald, who used to attend my home church. He was a road sweeper back there in the city of Belfast. He was a special needs person. But Gerald was very faithful in his road sweeping. Gerald was a man who believed in doing a good job, in doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, And it was testified by other people in the neighbourhood that he used to sweep up. That that was the cleanest part of the neighbourhood. That's the way it should be. Where Christians are concerned. They ought to be conscientious. Not shirkers, but workers. The Bible uses the term here, Not with eye service as men pleasers. You see that in chapter 3, verse 22. Not with eye service. Oh, here comes the boss. Let's get busy. That's not what the Lord wants us to do. The Lord wants us to be busy whether the boss can see us or not. Because he sees us. That's how it ought to be. We're conscientious. But not only that, the Christian employee should be consecrated. We're not talking here about preaching. We're not talking about going to the mission field. We're talking about everyday work. We're talking about something that some people might consider to be mundane Ordinary work. That's how people often view it. Secular work. Our everyday job. But notice how it is to be done. Verse 23 of chapter 3. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily. That is with all your heart. As to the Lord and not unto men. Doing your job in a consecrated fashion. Why? Why? Well, the next verse tells you why. Verse 24. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. See, you don't just serve the Lord Christ here in church. You serve the Lord Christ every day that you live. Out there in the world. In your home, in the workplace, and in the church. God sees us everywhere. We are to be consecrated in our work doing it as unto the Lord I gave several illustrations of that one thing I mentioned was that letters that used to be written from the government agencies in Great Britain had the letters O H M S on the envelopes it stood for on her majesty's service or on his majesty's service and that ought to be a description of the Christian in his place of work on his master's service everything to the Christian you see is sacred not secular our work should be committed do your best for Jesus at work At school, whatever it may be. Do it as unto the Lord. See, any work that you do, any work that I do, will be seen by God. Not just by an employer. But it will be recognized by the Lord. It will be acknowledged by Him. It will be rewarded. It tells us that there in the verse I just read. Verse 24 of chapter 3. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. I know you don't work necessarily to get a reward from the Lord, but you should. People work to get a wage. People work to get a salary. But Paul here is ordering the priorities of the Christian in the workplace. Whatever you do, you're to do it as unto the Lord, because you're serving the Lord Christ. From there I want us to think about this the other side of the coin we've talked about the dedication of the christian employee the duty of the christian employer notice in verse 25 the bible says and we're reading chapter 3 verse 25 but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the reward for the wrong which he hath done and there is no Respect of persons. Then, next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants, your bond slaves, in this case, your employees, that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. You might describe this as the duty of a good employer. God is no respecter of persons. In one sense, the Lord doesn't care whether you're a foreman or a regular worker. He doesn't care whether you are a boss or you are the latest guy who just got employed. He demands equally high standards of both. And therefore, He demands high standards of men who are in authority as well as those who are under their authority. See this. In chapter 4 verse 1, it's a word that is very important. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Why? Knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. You have one that you serve. And what you might expect of your employee, the Lord expects of you as an employer. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And in verse 9, there's similar teaching here. And ye masters do the same things unto them. Forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Your master is in heaven. We must always have our eye upon the Lord. Employers, according to Scripture, must treat their workers fairly and pay them a just wage. These things matter to God. And God actually takes note of the unscrupulous behaviour of employers. He does. Turn with me to James chapter 5. And I'll show you this very clearly from the Scripture. James chapter 5. Reading from the first verse. James writes, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl, for your miseries that shall come upon you, your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the labourers, who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The Lord of Sabaoth is the Lord of hosts. Now think about this carefully. God takes note of how employers treat their employees. In this instance, he's referring to those who were rich at the expense of other people. This is not an attack on capitalism, by the way. There are some people who like to twist the scriptures to make it say what it doesn't say. But the fact of the matter is there are people who are in positions of power and wealth. Who increase their wealth at the expense of other people. By unscrupulous practices. And the Lord knows about it and the Lord sees it and the Lord will punish it. Notice here he says, The hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. It was crying in the ears of God. God could see their cries. God heard their cries. Because their employers were defrauding them. Keeping back from them that which they had lawfully earned. He actually says the cries of those that have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of Sabaoth. God sees everything that takes place on this earth. And a fair day's pay for a fair day's work is what God demands of every employer. He demands the proper treatment of those who are employed. And we note the standard it's very clear. The standard is set by the Lord himself, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. He is our master. Every earthly master has a heavenly master. The question is, would he want God to deal with him as he deals with his employees? And that's a really good question when we broaden it out, just to speak about this generally. Would we want The Lord to treat us the way we treat other people sometimes. We know that parable that the Lord gave. Remember that one? Where someone owed a large amount. Another man owed a really small amount. And the the one who owed a small amount was not forgiven for that debt, he was punished and thrown into prison. But the one who did that himself was one who owed a lot more. And the Lord is teaching us here that that is not right. We would not want the Lord to deal with us as we might deal with others. In that case. And it's a sad thing when a Christian employer has no testimony before his workers. Today you may be employed... One day you may, by the grace of God, become an employer. And if that does happen, and the Lord prospers you in that way, do not forget what it was like to be an employee. Don't forget what that was like. Treat them as you would like to be treated. My late grandfather used to say to me all the time, Son, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Great saying that. People call that a golden rule. That's biblical. You go back to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. This is very practical teaching, isn't it? Very much where the rubber meets the road. This is not airy fairy stuff. This is right down where we live. Matthew chapter 8 from verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. Unto my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them, that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self same hour. The centurion had a great love for his servant. He cared for his servant. Even though he was a man with great authority, He had a bunch of soldiers that he ruled over. He could tell them whatever he wanted to tell them. Go. Come. Do this. Do that. He was a man of authority. And yet he was a man who had great compassion for his servant. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 12, the Lord says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them? For this is the law and the prophets. This is practical Christianity. And so you have here the duty of the Christian employer. But there is in the third place something else in this passage. And it's the demand for all Christians that is expressed. He's particularly referring to masters and servants. We could say today Employers and employees. But what he's saying here is for all believers. Now notice, if you contrast Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 with Colossians 3 verse 25, you see that in the former, masters are addressed, but in the latter, it's directed to the slaves or the servants. Let me read it. Ephesians chapter 6... Verse 9. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So the masters are addressed here. But go to Colossians 3 verse 25. And it says, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. You see that statement? There's no respect of persons. In this instance, it's for the servants. So, the Lord is careful to make it clear to both masters and servants, there's no respect of persons. He doesn't just say it to the underlings. He says it to those that are in authority. The Lord doesn't care about whether you're a high poncho or you're just a neophyte starting out. There's a demand made of all believers by the Lord. Now, if you note the marginal rendering of Ephesians 6, verse 9, it's interesting to note that it says, verse there, in that verse, knowing that your master also is in heaven. But here in the margin, it is. Some read both your and their master. See, he's the master of each one. He's your master. What is that saying? It's saying that both masters and servants are servants. Both are actually bond slaves, equally, of the heavenly master. The ground is level at Calvary. Just because someone is a Christian employer, he's high up in the company, someone is low down in the company, doesn't mean that there's some difference between them before God. There's not. They're they're on the same level when it comes to Calvary. The ground is dead level at the cross. The Lord treats us equally. Speaking to us equally as those who are under the authority of our Master. Both are servants. It's important to note this. Now, the master-slave relationship, as it's talked about in the Bible, is one that all Christians should be interested in. Because our Lord Jesus Christ gave a great illustration in John chapter 13. Please turn over there. John chapter 13. The Lord gave to His disciples a lesson in humility. A lesson that all of us as believers are supposed to learn. John 13, from verse 13. Just prior to that, what had happened was that the Lord had risen from supper. He laid aside His garments. He took a towel, wrapped it around Himself. He poured water into a basin. And He began to wash the disciples' feet one by one and to wipe their feet with the towel that He was girded with. They knew those were the actions of a slave. In eastern homes in those days, they would have had men who performed that for visitors. If you come into someone's home, there would be a servant there with the towel, with the basin of water. You would take off your sandals. He would wash your feet. And then you would enter into the house. That was the work of the servant. So here's Jesus doing that. Jesus is doing this. He's taking the place of the servant. So it is a picture of parable to his disciples and to us of what the Lord came here to do. He humbled himself that he might become a servant. A slave indeed. That's the thought and that's the word. You see it in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul writes about the humiliation of Christ who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Philippians 2, verse 7, And took upon him the form of a servant, doulos, bond slave, and was made in the likeness of men. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ taking up the position of a slave. Now let's read on in John 13. From verse 13. What did the Lord do? Whenever he washed the disciples' feet. Verse 13 says, verse 12 actually says, so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, so those garments that he left off to become a servant, he put back on. There's a wonderful picture there of what happened when Jesus had died and was risen and was ascended and went back into heaven. It's as if he put back on those garments of glory. He was no longer in the garments of humiliation. Now he's exalted. To God's right hand. It says, when he had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. Do you understand what I just did? Verse 13, Ye call me Master and Lord. See that? They didn't call him servant. They called him Master. They called him Lord. And ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now what the Lord is not doing here is establishing a third ordinance for the church. There are some communions of Christians who think that the Lord had established here a third ordinance. There's baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot washing. No, that's not what the Lord was doing here at all what the Lord was doing here was giving them a picture parable, an example of humility taking the place of a bond slave and telling them I'm your master but I became like a bond slave and that's what you're supposed to do for one another, you're to serve one another this is what you're to do The demand of God is expressed here for all believers. And it is a demand for faithful servanthood from his people. We think of what Paul said about himself in Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. A bond slave of Jesus Christ. You'll see further in chapter 6 of Romans, from verse 17, that he takes this same word, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. The word is bond slaves. That's the way it was before we were saved. We were in bondage. You say to the average person who's not saved, you know you're in bondage. You're held captive by your sins. They'll laugh at you. The last I said, I'm not held, I'm not held captive by anything. I, I freely do what I do. I'm not in any bondage. But they don't realise what the truth is, as it is described for us in Second Timothy chapter two and verse twenty-five. They're those who are held captive by the devil at his will. They think they're free, but they're under the servitude of someone, and it's not the Lord. They're serving self and Satan they're serving sin and this is the terminology Paul uses here Romans 6:17 but God be thanked that ye were the bond slaves, the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you being then made free from sin see released from from the bondage ye became same word the servants of righteousness bond slaves we've changed Masters, we're no longer under the devil's servitude. We're now under the Lord's servitude. And he goes on to say, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants, same word, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, again, bond slaves, to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants... Bond slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then? And those things were you're now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants, bond slaves to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. The demand of God for all Christians is expressed we must act as willing bond servants, bond slaves of the Lord. But, let me put this caveat in, not regarding his service as bondage, but as perfect freedom. I don't view the Lord's commandments as bondage, I view them as freedom. The Apostle John wrote that his commandments are not grievous, the word means burdensome. It's not a hard thing to keep the Lord's commandments, in the sense that we freely want to. Because we love him. He is the master. The master whom we love. The master who we want to please. The master that we want to serve in all aspects of our service. You know the way a Christian ought to feel about the Lord and his service is illustrated in a beautiful Old Testament scripture. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, we have some of the divers laws and ordinances that the Lord gave to Israel for the right ordering of that nation. And he allowed Israel to have what was essentially a modified form of slavery. I say a modified form because there were conditions attached to it that were merciful. Now look at this. Exodus 21 from verse 1. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, that's a slave, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. I've heard people try to defend slavery as it was practiced here in the US. And I have never found one of them who believed that in the seventh year the slave should go free. None of them believed that. But this is what happened in Israel. But read on. If he came in by himself, in other words he's a single man, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. So she would not remain in servitude, she would also be free. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant, that's the slave again, shall plainly say, watch this, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall serve him Forever. So he would take him to a doorpost. If he decided he wanted to stay with his master and his children, he didn't want to go free, he wanted to stay and work, he would take him to the doorpost, he would take this thing called an awl and he would drill a hole right through the earlobe of that servant. In sign of perpetual servanthood. And everybody looking at him would see that he's a perpetual servant. Of his master. But you see this. Is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn with me to Psalm 40. This is beautiful. In Psalm 40 from verse 6. We have words that are repeated in Hebrews 10. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. You have Christ here as the perfect servant of Jehovah. And he makes a statement here in verse 6. Mine ears hast thou opened. if you have have a marginal rendering in your authorised version, you'll see that the Hebrew allows for the translation, digged. Mine ears hast thou digged. That is an actual reference to what happened when the master would bore through the ear of that slave with an awl. The Lord Jesus Christ here is speaking about the fact that He is that perfect servant who loves his master, even God the Father, and he's sworn to perpetual servanthood. Behold, my servant, Isaiah says, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. There's a hymn which says, I love, I love my master. I will not go out free. For He is my Redeemer. He gave Himself for me. That's something that you and I should be saying. Not literally, but spiritually. That the Lord would bore through our ear. That would be His perpetual servant. We don't want to leave His service. We don't want to go out free and live a life that's pleasing to the devil and to the world. But we want to live a life that's pleasing unto Him. As His perfect servant. His service. is perfect freedom. The Lord has called us to this. To serve Him with all our heart and soul and mind. Reminding you of what it says there in Colossians 3. Toward the end of the chapter. Verse 24. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Are you serving the Lord Christ? Are you seeking to follow him in every area of your life? Can you say, I would not leave his service because he paid the price for me. He bought me with a price. Therefore, I am obligated to serve him. May God help us so to do for his own glory. Amen.